by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. All these women and gay people and black people are all trying to fight for their rights and blah, blah, blah. Like, I've literally been in rooms where people have said that and they're like, everyone just needs to shut up and focus on climate change, which is so wrong because the climate crisis is intersectional. Just like I'm neither, like all of my identities are intersectional. They all make me, I'm not defined by them, but they're all like, you can't really separate them because they all play a part in who I am. Uh, it's the same way that the climate crisis is intersectional and like, you can't say stop fighting racism to fight the climate crisis. That's Jamie Margolin, co-founder of This Is Zero Hour and the author of Youth to Power, Your Voice, and How to Use It. She's our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Wow, man, I'm going to tell you something. This is like a dear sister to me. She is so exciting. She's doing so much great work uh, within the climate movement. It is my sister, the co-founder of This Is Zero Hour, the author, I love saying that, of Youth Power, and one of the plaintiffs of the youth verse of plaintiffs fighting, making sure that we know that demonstration without litigation leads to frustration. My sister, Jamie Margolin. Jamie, how are you? I am good. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I it's. I feel like it's been so long since we've talked. I miss you. I know. <laughs> I miss you too. So so I, I don't want to start yeah. with the, what's been up because it's a lot that's been up. So I want to ask, how are you doing? I mean, I'm going to, to be honest, I've been better. There's just been so much going on in the world and in my life that are, it's not all good things. And so I've just been trying to put one foot in front of the other and just do the the next right thing and just try to you know keep keep my head up because it's been it's been pretty tough. These are not easy times for me either um, in my life or like in the world. And I think the world reflects that I, it's just such a chaotic and tragic time in the world. So I feel like I've really been feeling that as well. So yeah, but I'm I'm doing okay. I'm just trying to like I said, just put one foot in front of the other. Mm, thank you. So, you know, Jamie, before I before we get into it, I think people need to know who you are. Um, you know, you're not like 40 or 50 years old. You're, you're a young person, <laughs> but you got it. You got a wonderful uh, uh, bio already. Uh, for those who don't know, Jamie Margolin is a Colombian American writer, community organizer, activist and public speaker living in Seattle, Washington. Her identity as a Latina Jewish lesbian drives her passion to fight for those who are oppressed and marginalized. Margolin is the founder of Zero Hour, an international youth climate justice movement, which led the Youth Climate March in Washington, D.C. and 25 other cities all around the world during the summer of 2018. Uh, Jamie is also a plaintiff on our Children's Trust Youth vs. Gov, a Washington state lawsuit against the state of Washington for denying her generation's constitutional rights to a livable environment by continuing to make climate change worse. She is the author of Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It, a guide for you to get involved with activism. And I just want to say that I met Jamie right when she was planning the Youth Climate March um, in Washington, D.C. and across the country. And since then, um, these past two years, uh, we've become friends. And I have definitely, as an, as an older activist, admired her, her work uh, in this process. But um, I think she also brings a unique perspective for folks who may not understand the other side. Um, I've met her father, I've seen her mom, and also, let me just say, Jamie, that I know your grandfather passed away, so my condolences to you and that. Um, but for folks who don't know who is Jamie Markman, who just kind of see you in Teen Vogue or see you with all the makeup and <laughs> and all the fun stuff that's part of that, who is Jamie Markman? 
Um, she is just an 18 year old girl trying to figure out how to navigate this very, very, um, chaotic and tumultuous world. Like I'm really, I'm just, uh, I think people forget that I'm just a teenager and I'm still just a kid and I'm still just trying to figure out what to do, um, and what I'm going to do with my life and how to navigate everything you know, considering that with right now with a global pandemic and with a climate crisis and everything, I'm trying to plan my life um, and and make the best of it when, you know, I'm young and such a, and growing into such a dark world. So, I mean, I guess who am I? I'm also, I guess beyond my resume, you know, I'm someone who is a um, friend and a daughter and I really care about my friends and my family. And, um, I really love music and dancing around the house, like uh, really badly, like, you know, um, <laughs> and just having fun, hanging out with my friends, binge watching Netflix and movies. I love, um, any movie with a female superhero. And like, uh, I love, um, some Disney movies. I love like, like, I'm just like a kid, you know, um, I think that people forget that and they put a lot of pressure on me and other young people doing the work that I'm doing and kind of de take away, see me as like a, see me as like a figure or something that is not a person when I really am just a person. So, I mean, I guess that's, that's who I am. Um, even like other folks my age, you know, will think that because I have built this platform and that I have a platform that, you know, people can get away with um, trying to like, you know, harm me and hurt and, and you know, um, that I can like take larger amounts of just vitriol than the average person because I have built this platform. Therefore, you know, it's what I should expect and what I should be able to take, but you know, it's still difficult. <clears throat> It's still difficult, and I'm still just a teenager. So I think people need to remember that. No, that's important. Um, are you uh, planning on going to school, or and, and how that happened with your activism? Yeah. So actually, um, I'm going. I mean, let's cross my fingers because you know I don't know how this is going to happen with the coronavirus. But I hope. I mean, right now the school that I'm going to has said like. They, they think that they're opening in the fall. So as of right now, I'm going to school in the fall. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to film school. Um, and that surprises a lot of people. Oh, like, great. Yeah, they're like, what? Why are you going to film school? I thought you were going to like study political science. Nope, I'm studying um, film and television because I, I had like, I recently had kind of, not an epiphany, but I was just thinking like, what would I be doing with my life if, the climate crisis wasn't a thing. Like, like if I didn't have this impending disaster to deal with, what would I be doing that makes me happy? Because, you know, I've been recently kind of unhappy and I was like, okay, what would make me happy? And I've always been a creator and I've always been very creative and an artistic person. I've, ever since I was little, I was always writing and telling stories. And I realized like what I actually see myself doing. And then like, I, I'm obsessed with the medium of like, I, I constantly watch television and movies and that's my coping mechanism with the world and movies and television means so much to mm. me that I really want to be um, a, a screenwriter and a director and someone who can shape the stories because so many of the stories told don't um, represent a lot of people and I grew up feeling really alone because I didn't see a lot of girls like me on television and so and in movies and I'm just someone who really enjoys storytelling and writing and bringing things to life as well. So yeah, I'm hopefully going to um, go into Hollywood and do that because I feel like I realize that I'm more of an artist than I am a politician. And I've just recently been realizing that. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm going to go into. I think people have seen me more as a politician than an artist, which I realize that like, that's not what I, how I want to move through the world, at least not for the near future. Like I want to make art i want to make movies um so yeah that's what i'm gonna do for college that's exciting well let me just say this to you now uh man you know i love that at the hip-hop caucus we have we believe in that we believe in how one could use their uh cultural expression to actually shape their political experience and so man i will invite you as you go through your collegiate journey <laughs> <laughs> please to come by and 
and be a part. You know, we have a, a creative platform called Think 100% that actually deals with film and podcasts which, and radio, which y'all now, and as, but as well as music. And so with our film, we're actually pro- producing a film, as you know, uh, which is part called HMO's Heat Wave, a comedy and a documentary about the flood risings, particularly um, in communities of color uh, that is actually being produced by the amazing, executive produced by the amazing Dream Hampton, who wrote Surviving R. Kelly um, and produced Surviving R. Kelly. So, man, I just invite you. So as you're doing that, so please, you, you want to connect all the dots. You are more than welcome to come to our writer's room and be a part of our creative team over there in L.A. Uh, I would love caucus, to. So pl- I would love to. Yeah, that's a that's open at that. So there you go. So when you get ready to look up for your your next your interns and your fellowships during your next break, where, how would that break work? With right. COVID? <laughs> and then you're more than welcome to come down to L.A. and and hang with us. Um, and that's exciting. So why do you? So why is actually why do you think that? We need to have more creative expression and more conversations within the climate movement. I think that, that creative expression is really a way to bring people in. I've never seen someone moved to action by looking at a chart. The people who, who are we going to be moved to action looking by a chart have already been moved to action, right? Like we already got all the people who see the science and are like, oh God, and they, they, they take action. I'm not saying science doesn't inspire anyone because it does, but it's kind of already inspired everyone that it's going to inspire. And also... Um, there's, you have to be able to communicate those facts in a way that, that strings an emotion, uh, scientific study after scientific study has shown that people aren't moved by facts. They're moved by emotions. They're moved by how you make them feel and art and music and film and all of these mediums elicit strong emotions from people. And that's really what makes them like want to act. Like I remember, you know, watching, documentaries and movies and stuff about this issue um really is what moved me beyond just you know reading an ipcc report it'll it'll provide facts that'll make you concerned if you're already someone who cares but if you really want to engage the the full public then you have to have a way to communicate these facts in a way that um people can relate to in a way like i feel like art is a universal language and if people can relate to it and if people can feel them like see themselves in it or kind of resonate with it then that's how you're going to bring in a lot more people into the cause like the uh the cause all causes need art because they always have no that's important and we mentioned not seeing yourself i mean you identify as a latina jewish lesbian. And in that, that's like three major things. One from communities of color, with Latina, obviously, one from religion and spirituality with Jewish, and one as a lesbian from the queer community. And so how do you, well, how have you not seen that? And then what do you want to see more of that in, in film and art and in and in those kind of things? Um. Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing that that was really, really difficult for me was growing up not seeing really much queer representation, especially not for queer women, because there is still misogyny. And so usually if there's going to be representation, it's going to be men, which, you know, I can't relate to. And so I just I remember growing up really confused about who I was. Um and I never saw that in the media until like I was in my teens. And that's when I finally I came out when I was 16. And it took me so long because it was like, I didn't even know. Um, Cause I never saw myself represented in any of the, you know, I grew up on Disney princess movies and stuff like that. And all the girls who got happily ever afters were girls who wanted to marry the prince. And I couldn't relate to that. And so I was like, well, darn, you know, like it would have meant so much to me to see um, to see queerness represented. And that would have, I know for a lot of, I, I'm lucky to be in a place that is very accepting with a family that is very accepting, but I know for a lot of other queer people growing up, they don't get to feel that. And a lot of times, you know, the depression and suicide rates and all those things for queer kids is very high as compared to their straight and cis counterparts. Um, and I know in a lot of cases, representation has literally saved lives when you think you're so alone, when you think no one's in your corner, and then you turn on the TV or you watch a movie and there's a character like you. Um, 
that then makes it out okay. And then, then there's hope. Like I've heard so many stories of people who where representation has literally saved their lives. And so for me, the biggest thing is like, you know, the biggest thing that I want to do is I want to, the kind of um, art that I want to make is I want to make like a narrative, like movies and shows that really center the stories of queer women, because I feel like that's a unique experience that I don't see a lot. And that I see, if I see it, it's usually fetishized from the perspective of like straight men, which is not representational and is not empowering. It's just very like, when it comes from their perspective, it's very objectifying and makes you feel like kind of um, there are many situations where, um, the, it's just very uncomfortable. And so that's really the art that I want to make. And then I guess, you know, um, I also think that there does need to be more media centering Jewish stories and centering Latino and Hispanic stories. And, um, there is no one Latino experience. Like I come from, uh, you know, my family's from Colombia, which is one country. And within that country, there are many different racial groups and ethnic groups and all those things. So it's not like I can sit here claiming that I can tell like Latino stories because Latini, that is so, it's not even a race. It's like, there are white Latinos, there are uh, brown and indigenous Latinos, there are black Latinos. And so it's like, there, even within that ethnic group, it's not even like like there's so much diversity within that so I do want to tell Latino and Hispanic stories but um you know that's such a diverse group that you can't there is no such thing as one Latino story um and I also want to tell Jewish stories and and but also just tell stories in general that people can resonate with but with characters that um people can see themselves in because I, I think a lot of communities don't see themselves in Hollywood I mean Hollywood has a very racist patriarchal history. I think the very first, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the very first hit film was Birth of a Nation, the Ku Klux Klan film. That's that's like the first hit movie. So if that's where Hollywood And it was shown in 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 the White House at that time. Yeah. With, with Woodrow Wilson. So Birth of a yeah. Nation was like the first hit film. <laughs> so that's where we're working from, you know, so that the, the industry has a long way to go. I mean, obviously we're not there right now, but we still have a long way to go. No, we have a, we have a long way, but I think I, hopefully we can get better. And with, with dynamic uh, voices like yourself, I think we can, we will get there faster. How do you think being a Latina Jewish lesbian uh, has made you a better activist? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, if I put that, you know, in my bio and stuff, just so people understand where I'm coming from. And people are always like, well, that's a weird mix of things. Um, just for, just for people to, to understand I'm, um, mixed. So my mom is from Colombia. My dad is an American Jew. Uh, and then I ended up taking my dad's religion. Um, and then, you know, I think the gay part is pretty self-explanatory. Um, <laughs> um, and I think the, the thing, the thing with that is like, I guess I've been in a lot of situations where people are like, we need to stop fighting for social justice and just focus on climate change, which is such a wrong sentiment. And it's like for a lot of people, you know, I'm not going to like, okay, I'm going to stop being a woman and fight climate change. Like I'm going to stop going through everything that women go through or stop going through everything that gay people go through, or I'm going to stop experiencing anti-Semitism because of climate change. Like you can't pause your identities. No one's going to, you know, no one's like, okay, halt. I'm, I'm not black until we solve the climate crisis. You know, like I've, I've just been through so many, I've, I've heard from so many folks of many levels of privilege who are just like, I can't, um, you know, we can't solve this issue until we can't, we can't like ignore all the social justice issues and just focus on climate change. You know, everyone needs to, all these women and gay people and black people are all trying to fight for their rights and blah, blah, blah. Like I've literally been in rooms where people have said that and mm. they're like, everyone just needs to shut up and focus on climate change, which is so wrong because the climate crisis is intersectional. Just like I'm neither, like all of my identities are intersectional. They all make me, I'm not defined by them, but they're all like, you can't really separate them because they all play a part in who I am. You know, it's, it's in my DNA. Like it's who I am. Uh, it's the same way that the climate crisis is intersectional. And like, you can't say stop fighting racism to fight the climate crisis. A, because people aren't going to stop experiencing racism or homophobia or whatever people experience because there's a climate crisis. Like people are going to continue experiencing violence and brutality. And we have to still be fighting against that. And these movements are not a distraction and not a waste of time. They're not distracting from the climate crisis. 
they are intertwined with the climate crisis. The fight for, you know, people, the fight for racial justice is not a distraction from the climate crisis. It's all intersectional because climate justice is racial justice. It is gender justice. And so, you know, saying, and so I think that people really need to understand that I think that coming from, uh, I guess this intersection of identities has made me a more empathetic person, but it's also made me understand intersectionality and how you can't separate. And you, I'm not going to pause being who I am and pause facing adversity until the climate crisis is solved. Like that's just not how the world works. So we have to be fighting all of these battles at the same time. I'm talking with Tammy Martin. She is the founder of Zero Hour. And so actually, Jamie, what is going on with Zero Hour? And I just want to say that I love the work. I'm going to kind of dig into that some more, but explain for those who haven't heard about Zero Hour, what is Zero Hour and what are you doing right now? Yeah, so Zero Hour is a youth climate justice organization. Um, I co-founded it with um, Nadia Nazar, uh, Madeline Tu, and Zanaji artists back in 2017. And ever since then, uh, we have been mobilizing and organizing for climate justice. We've organized marches, rallies, protests. Um, some uh, Just a year ago today, we were all in Miami organizing the Youth Climate Summit, uh, where you were there. Um, and, and you gave an amazing, amazing speech that really inspired people. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and yeah, and so we just try, we organize events and campaigns for climate justice is how to narrow us down, you know, quickly. And it's been difficult because we were initially supposed to go on a bus tour. We were supposed to be planning, um, like we were supposed to be around the country going on a bus tour for, um, to register people to vote for our vote for our future campaign that we're doing with the national children's campaign. And that, ended up not being able to happen because of this virus. And so we've had to instead resort to a digital, we're going to do like a digital bus tour, which is kind of like we're doing webinars centered on different communities and inviting people and all of that. So that's what we're up to. We're going to be doing webinars and um, we, we've just been doing as a lot of digital education, digital action. Um, you know, we have been, we've just been doing everything that we can considering the limitations of the pandemic and um, you know, like we did earth day live and all these other things where we just tried to um, honor, you know, all of these social movements and continue the fight during this pandemic. So that's really what we've been up to. And right now we're focusing on getting out the vote um, with our vote for our future campaign and getting a high voter turnout. And we've been endorsing a lot of down ballot candidates uh, to make sure that, you know, people turn out for progressive candidates because we need people in office who are going to make a difference um, and not uphold the fossil fuel industry and not uphold greed. And so that's also what we've been fighting for and trying to fight for different um, down ballot candidates and progressives. This would actually be your first time voting, right? 18? Yeah, I actually already cast the first ballot of my life. I was a surrogate. Right. I was a surrogate with the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, and I got to speak at several campaign rallies, which was really amazing, and meet him and see him behind the scenes, Bernie. I mean, behind the scenes and all of that, and be with the campaign and be on the campaign trail. And I got to cast the very first ballot of my life for Bernie Sanders. That didn't work out. Um, I'm I'm still sad about you know the the outcome of the primaries. I am a delegate for the National Democratic Convention, um, so I will be also casting a ballot for Bernie as a official as a delegate for the um, Democratic Convention. The convention is going to be digital as well, but I am still um, a delegate for that. And then, yeah, I'll be voting in the general election as well. So I've been exercising my democratic uh, rights quite a bit lately. <laughs> no, that's good. That's all. That's all. That's exciting. What, what would you want your peers, those who are casting their 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 vote this first time in 2020, so to speak? Um, what would you want them overall to know about the civic engagement process? Um, I'd want them to know about the civic engagement process, that it's more than just the presidential election. Like, you know, yeah, maybe you're very frustrated with the presidential election. And look, I am too. But there's so many down ballot races that make such a huge difference. A lot of uh, change happens in local politics and in community like politics. So you should still be ex- doing your research about 
local races, Congress, Senate, um, and even more local, like mayoral, um, city council, all of these things, and making sure that um, you're casting your ballot there and you're doing your research because a lot of change can happen and a lot of um, really radical change can happen with transforming the landscape of local politics. So I think that people, you know, if you're very frustrated with national politics, that doesn't mean you should tune out completely. I think there's still a lot to be done locally that people uh, shouldn't undermine the power of that. No, I mean, well, that's a great way to put it. Thank you, Jane. I think that uh, you have shown definitely why it's important to be engaged. And I think the more people are engaged overall in general, it's better for our process. And so that's one thing we've done Hip Hop Caucus with our Respect My Vote campaign that just literally try to go from the suites to the streets. And so thank you for doing that as well at Zero Hour. And I guess, you know, speaking of that, you know, we we had this kind when you first came on to the show actually two years ago, um, you know, we actually had a conversation about Zero Hour's guiding principles and they were able to participate in the frontline leadership Shifting, uh, shifting away from oppressive systems and intersexual environmentalism. And so I guess looking back on that two years ago and where you are now, do you think you were right? Do you think you were wrong? Do you think you were naive? Do you think you were uh, uh, looking at it from the right angle, but people weren't on board? Uh, now knowing how the the, the environmental movement is kind of structured. What are your thoughts now about those guiding principles? Have they changed? Have you broadened them? I mean, where are you now in that process? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I mean, I, so much has changed since um, we were since your hours on your show two two years ago, and I think a lot has changed. I think we we still stand by our guiding principles. They haven't changed because it's still accurate, and I think we're still correct to stand for them. For those of you who don't know what our guiding principles are, you can go to thisiszerohour.org to read our platform. And pretty much just to sum it up for people listening is we talk about mostly the intersections of social justice and climate justice and talking about the urgency of this issue and how um, it cannot be separated from social justice issues. And I feel like that is still 100% the case. We based our platform off of facts. We based our guiding, our guiding principle off of facts. And so the facts haven't changed. So we haven't changed our minds about that. Now, the movement has changed a lot. I think there have been a good and bad, I think, ever since then, you know, back then it wasn't cool to be a youth climate um, organizer or just to be a climate activist in general. And I feel like there's just been a boom in public opinion where now everyone wants to be involved, which I think is incredible. But there are some downsides. You know, there's a lot of greenwashing more more now. And then there are folks kind of hop hop in at how just kind of hop on the bandwagon for clout or just other things that it just, you know, that 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 come with the territory of something getting big. So that's the I think that put aside though, overall the good that has come out of this mass movement is outweighs any um, negatives. I think that what has been incredible and what has changed since the last two years is that how what we were saying was still considered so radical and unusual and is now considered like, oh yeah, of course climate justice is social justice. You know, I feel like that tide has changed and people, even people who were just preaching only the science are now like, oh yeah, definitely climate justice is social justice. And I think even from two years ago, that was a lot more radical and unusual take to stand on. Not that the facts have changed, the facts have stayed the same. We didn't discover anything and we didn't make anything up because you know, Zero Hour didn't invent climate justice. That that work has been being done way longer than, than we've been around. But ever since those two years ago, because of the work that we've done and the big climate strike movement and the, the just the massive explosion of the of the climate movement in general, that that those radical takes that we had that people had considered very fringe are now very mainstream. And I think that's a big accomplishment that now it's kind of something that people are like, well, duh, of course we need to tackle climate, um, the climate crisis with the intersections of racial justice and gender equality and all of these other things. And that's a win be- for public opinion, because before people only thought of it, this as a scientific issue. And in the past two years, there has been a massive shift in public opinion. Well, I just want to say that I commend Zero Hour and groups like Sunrise and obviously Earth Guardians and groups like Hip Hop Caucus, who have always said simply 
that climate justice is racial justice and racial justice is climate justice. So thank you for being a part of that trend and that and that that new um, mobilization of that understanding. But I guess the one thing I would just ask you right now is that understanding more two years later as you've grown and it's kind of seen with the big greens and remember to movement and seeing that it is still a pretty pretty white movement. How are you and Zero Hour doing to center Black voices right now, particularly Black youth in the climate movement? Yeah, I mean, I'll give a, a preface that, you know, I am, obviously I'm a non-Black person. And um, if anyone who looks at me, by all definitions, I'm white. Like, yes, I'm Latina, but that's not a race. And if you look at my skin tone, like, you know, I, I, I have white privilege. Like, that's something that people can't really deny. So um, that's that's where I'm coming from in this. So obviously I can't, um, That that's not, I just wanted to preface that so people know where I'm coming from as my own identity. But within Zero Hour, the just the vast majority of Zero Hour is mostly Black women. Like, if you look at, and this is not to be a weird flex to be like, oh, we're so diverse. Like, I'm just saying, I'm just stating a fact, and this happened um, because. The climate crisis is also a matter of racial justice, and it's really important that our movements are diverse. And so the great thing about Zero Hour um, is that the vast majority of the organization and the people in charge are Black women. Um, And that's not a, you know, that's those, that's really the people who are leading the movement. Um, Black women make up the most of Zero Hour, and they are really steering and leading and are the heart of Zero Hour. And so that's really, and it doesn't come from an ingenuine place. It wasn't like, oh God, we need diversity quick. Let's get like, like, it's not like it didn't come from a fake. Oh my God. Like let's, let's bring some on. So we're not considered racist. Like that's not where that came from. It it's, it's not a fake diversity where it's, oh shoot, we got to look not racist. Let's bring on some token folks. That's not what this is at all. In the heart of the movement since day one, it's been led by a majority young folks of color and black black young people, especially black women. That's just how, it is, how, how it's been just organically. And um, so it's not coming from a place of like, there's a lot of fake diversity, you know, fake like um, tokenism in a lot of places that is, is it comes more from a place of PR not wanting to seem racist than it comes from a genuine need for inclusion and a genuine need to understand the value of having certain communities lead. And with Zero Hour, it's always come from a place of genuine inclusion and genuine um, it's just who we are. Like it, it, it is, if you count who's in the organization, it is mostly black women. And, um, it's become a space where people who usually are not considered, um, people who usually haven't had the chance to lead can lead. Um, and I think that's something that's really important. And like I, like I said to preface, you know, I don't, this isn't me as a non-black person, like flexing, like we have, we're so diverse. Like it doesn't come from that place at all. I'm just stating, uh, the fact of of who we are and and it's not just and diversity isn't just oh look how not racist we are it's really like you can't have a good functional movement without actual genuine diversity because this is a crisis that impacts marginalized communities the most and so if you don't have um, people at the table uh, if you don't have just different perspectives at the table then your movement is just going to be worse off it's just like you're going to not make the right decisions you're going to I think too many people see diversity quote unquote as like an afterthought and they see it as something that is just something that you tack on at the end as an afterthought to for PR purposes when that's not what it is at all it has to be at the heart of your movement because um you you literally cannot have a functional movement like without all of the voices at the table you cannot make the right decisions like your movement is just going to be worse off like you're just going to have a bad movement and a bad organization if you don't have all of the voices at the table like you're just going to not be able to organize right. And so I, yeah, I've, I've rambled for a little bit, but I guess that's my answer to your question of how zero hour. No, that was a good, that was a very good answer, but let's sell some books. <laughs> so you actually just wrote a book. Your book is called Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It, um, a guide for young people to get involved with activism. Um, so what advice would you give youth looking to advocate 
for a cause that's important to them? Let's start with that one. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I wrote a book called Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It, which is pretty much the book that I would have given my younger self when I was first starting to get involved, when I had no idea how to organize and how to mobilize. Um, this is the book that I wish that I would have had. Um, it walks through all of the different basic steps of organizing and trying to make a change and uh, different skill sets like lobbying and writing for a cause and all of these different things. Um, and to answer your question of what advice I would give a young person who is first starting to get involved, um, I mean, that's really what the book was written to answer. The book was written to answer if someone, because I get so many questions of like, what do I do? How do I get involved? How do I organize? And it's like, it's almost like the book is like, the answer to that question. Um, but to answer it on, on air here, um, I just say like, take that first leap of just find it, just Google an organization, just find somewhere and just show up and offer yourself as help. Like offer, like I'm here. Um, I want to help. What do you need from me? And then that's how I started. And then you just, you keep learning as you, as you do, you learn by doing, you're not going to, the book is, not the ultimate guide to being a young activist. It's not like the guide because there's no such thing as the guide because there's so many different experiences and knowledge. And there are so many people who have, you know, have different experiences than me. So I'm not pretending to be the one who knows it all. It's just, this is my knowledge that I've learned that I want other people to know so that they can organize without having to go through all of the hoops and teach themselves everything like I did. So I'm hoping to make things easier for folks by passing down the knowledge. Listen, this is a phenomenal book. <laughs> let, me, let me state it for you. Let me let, let me let the old Rev here give you the plug. This is a great book and folks need to go pick it up. Those who are listening right now uh, to this show in New York City and in Washington, D.C. and all over the world, you need to go and pick up Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It um, by Jamie Margolin. And I think one of the reasons you need to pick that book up and get it for yourself or uh, an up-and-coming or seasoned activist is because in this book, Jamie, you discuss that the first step to becoming an activist is to find your why. So what is the why and how should one go about finding it? So your why is your reason to do the work you do. And I, I make sure to center that is the first chapter because before we can go into, oh, let's organize a march. Uh, let me, because I walk you through, through the book, I walk you through how to organize a march, how to partake in, um, you know, how to partake in direct action, how to write for a cause and like publish um, op-eds and articles and stuff like that, how to work the press for a cause, how to work social media for a cause. All of the, before we can get into all of that, we have to understand why you're doing this because you have to have a driving purpose behind the work you do. Otherwise you are going to be influenced and like pulled by everyone. And the reason I say this is that I get offers all of the time from different corporations and different people and just, you know, people who want to bring me one day or one way or the other. And if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. That's a pretty basic line. And so you have to, first things first, you have to realize what do you stand for? What will you not compromise? Your why is the reason why you do this work. It's something that will never change. It's um, something that you're fighting for or something that you're fighting, like something that you can't live without that you're fighting for or something that has happened that you want to prevent from happening again. It's, it's your driving purpose. Your why is not, I want to organize a march because a march is a tactic. It's not, I want to write a book. A book to make change is a tactic. You know, it's not, I want to lobby my politicians. Lobbying is a tactic. This isn't about what, what do you want to do. It's about what, what is your driving purpose? And in the book, I walk you through some exercises of how to find it. Um, you know, I initially got that, that initial, the whole concept of finding your wife from Natalie Mabane, who is my mentor. Um, she's a policy director at 350 and she is, an, she's a mentor to zero hour and she's my mentor. Um, and she walked me, you know, I was, I was having trouble. I was like, what, how do I start the book? And then she, I was, I was making a very difficult decision at the time. I was first starting to be reached out to by different large corporations and like fashion brands and people who are like, we want to work with you. And I was starting to feel like the moral dilemma of like, 
this could reach more people, but how much would I be selling out? And eventually I said, no, I turned down this brand that, that had reached out to me. I said, no, even though it would have gotten me money and clout and exposure because that's not what I'm in this for. And because, um, um, after talking to her, she was like, well, does this serve your why? Does this serve your purpose for doing this work? And I was like, in the end, no, this opportunity doesn't serve that. And she was like, well, then say no. Just if you know your why, then it's so much easier to make decisions. And so when you're offered something big or you add a moral dilemma, you can kind of know where you're going to go because it's like, does this serve my why? And she was explaining, and I, I quote her in the book and credit her with this. And Natalie was explaining, you know, for her, her why is a store bay in Trinidad and Tobago. She is, her family is from Trinidad and Tobago and store bay is a place that is being damaged by the climate crisis. And if she had all the money in the world, if she was as rich as Jeff Bezos, she would just want to spend all her time at store bay. And, um, and so it's like, that's a place that, that is like central to her why and why she's doing this work. And that's not going to change. And it's not something shallow or fleeting. It's this place that is sacred to her that, that she, that she will fight for. And so, you know, I talk about that and that's really what your why is all about. It's, it's, it's who you are at your core and why you're doing this work and something that you're fighting for that won't change. Mm, I love that. And let me just also shout out Natalie. Natalie is just an, an amazing, as you mentioned, this, a good person in the movement and an activist. And I will say, if you ever want to win a fight, find you some Trini women <laughs> from the Caribbean and you are going to win. Let me just be clear, folks who listen. If you want to, you want to get it, you go down there to the Caribbean or to South America and you enlist uh, those phenomenal women down there and you, you got a good chance of winning whatever you're fighting against. Actually, there are so many young activists who are featured in your book. I mean, in every chapter, um, you interviewed one or two activists for their advice and their perspective. So what was the idea behind including interviews of these folks in each chapter? And I guess what would you advise others to seek the experience and the advice of young activists? Well, the reason why I had um, other young people interviewed in the book is because I am not the sole, you know, my story is not the story. And I wanted to have people from many different causes and backgrounds to also share their stories and to share a little bit of their knowledge and wisdom as pertaining to every, after every chapter, as pertaining to the theme talked about in that chapter. And so my experiences within the climate movement as someone with my experiences, but there are so many other young people who have different experiences that also need to be highlighted and shared. And so when I got the book deal, um, two years ago, initially, like they, it wasn't any part of the plan to, to have young people interviewed for it. But then I was like, you know what, I really, now that I have this platform and now that I have this privilege of being someone with a book deal with a, a publishing house, like that's really huge. So I want to make sure I wanted to like share that a little bit and make sure that other voices were heard in the book and that it wasn't just about me because this is youth to power your voice and how to use it. It's not Jamie the book. And so uh, I went around and I, I kind of was like, okay, who are some underrated young activists, especially young activists of color, who could you really, like, people really need to know about. And then people would respond on social media, oh, I know this person, I know of this person. And then I would go through a weed out interview and, um, and, and put their stories and their knowledge in the book. Um, and that's really why and how, um, and, and I think people can learn a lot from them and be inspired by their stories. Um, like, Tokata Iron Eyes is one of the young people interviewed in the book. She's an incredible, um, young indigenous organizer who was a part of the No Dakota Access Pipeline movement. Nupal Kiazolu is interviewed in the book. She's an incredible Black Lives Matter activist that has a lot that people can learn from. And so I think I thought that even for the readers, it would also be beneficial to realize that there are so many people that they can learn from and that um, there are so many young people taking action in so many different ways. So they can learn from all of these young people um, and they can be inspired by all of these young people. And if they can't relate to my story, then maybe they can relate to one of the stories in the book and then that will help them. Mm, that's powerful. And I guess one thing, Jamie, you've been able to organize the old fashioned way, so to speak, <laughs> getting out there into the streets. You were out there, I remember in the rain when you were in DC and everywhere else you've been marching and in Miami and all over this country, you've been organizing uh, that way. But you've also 
as you know, with COVID and just in general, you've begun to kind of become an expert on how, and your book actually deals with this too as well, social media activism. So in your opinion, this is like a two-pronged question, which one of those is better, if or it could be the same, but also what's your advice now that we have to use these Zoom meetings and, um, you know, what's the, what's the, and using Instagram and TikTok and Twitch and all those kind of things. How, how, how can we mobilize the same way when you really can't touch people um, like you could in the streets? Well, I don't think that it's either digital organizing or in-person organizing. I think they both complement each other. And so I'm not going to choose one tactic over the other because in the end, they're both tactics to get to a goal. So if one tactic, I, no one tactic is going to be the one that wins. It's going to be all of them together. And I think the way that we can take action now is we can channel, we can understand that in the end, we're still communicating the same messages. We're just communicating in a different way. And so if you understand that everything is about persuasion and communication, then you can find a way to, um, I guess, mold your, or not mold, but communicate what you want to say to the world through these digital platforms. And it's obviously not the same as in person. And I miss being in person with the people I, I love so much. I miss it so much. And so it's very difficult to, um, it's, it's very difficult to just be in this, in this pandemic and not be able to be in person and organize all of these in-person events because there is so much value in being in physical community with each other. But I think that there's still a way. Um, and I do talk about this in the book about specific tactics of how you can use social media as well as the, um, mainstream media in terms of writing. Um, to make a change. But I think right now we have to just use every tactic at our disposal and don't underestimate the power of social media to really make a change. If you, for example, let's say there's a politician, because, because here's the thing to remember, Capitol Hill hasn't stopped. Votes are still being passed through. Like people are like, the Hill is still going. This is, we're, we're in a pandemic, but laws are still being passed and damage is still being done. And so, um, let's say there can be like a digital lobby day. Like if a, if one politician gets a thousands and thousands of people um, tagging him and using a hashtag to make the hashtag trend to say like, don't vote for this bill or vote for this bill or don't support this issue or support this issue, then their offices are going to be flooded with those notifications. And now they're taking it seriously. And if thousands of people are saying the same thing, then that's a form of you know, digital lobbying. And so I think there's a lot that we can do. No, I think that's actually very important. I like how you said that it's, it's not either or, it's really and both. So thank you for that. I think that's people sometimes get caught up in one or the other. I think right now we're kind of pushed in one direction because of COVID-19. But even with that, I think there's still a way that we have to connect both of those together. Um, so I just got really two more questions for you. And, 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 you know, I just wanted to, you know, cause you also have, obviously you've written your book, but you also wrote an op-ed for the Guardian in which you mentioned about this, the roots between how we can trace it with the climate crisis. Um, and it's on, and with how it extends back, uh, to the onset of the colonialism. Uh, so can you kind of connect, uh, the dots between the climate crisis and, uh, colonialism together. And also with that, can you also address the history and the effects that white supremacy has had on this extractive system on the climate crisis? Yeah. So the climate crisis is a result of colonialism because people think, okay, where did you have to think like, where did this climate, where did this climate crisis come from? And you have to remember, um, we wouldn't be in this situation like like the the physical place that the climate crisis came from is the industrial revolution and the releasing of um, carbon into the atmosphere. But the mindset, like how did we get to a mindset in a culture where just extraction is so normalized and we can know that it's destroying us and it's killing people and it's still okay and people still do it. That is colonialism. When colonialism started, when people showed up to a place claimed that the land and the people of that place were theirs, were resources. They dehumanized people um, and treated everyone and everything like a commodity to extract from. That's really the mindset and the spirit of colonialism. And that's what caused the climate crisis in the first place. 
and colonial violence is still happening. It's, it's, it's not over. Colonization is still happening. Um, and so the way that that ties into white supremacy is white supremacy is another system that thinks that certain people are resources and commodities and are to be used and extracted from and are inferior. And that mindset is how we got to the climate crisis in the first place. And the same people who are victims of white supremacy are the same people who feel the worst effects of the climate crisis because the system was set up to not value their lives. And so where, let's say where the coal plant is going to be built, where there's going to be, you know, where there's going to be a coal plant, where there's going to be some sort of hazardous waste, um, where there's environmental damage to a community or people that's going to be most likely built in a community that is on the receiving end of that is that is a victim of white supremacy. It's going to be built in a black and brown communities because those systems have been in place for so long that that our society has been taught to value certain lives less than others, and that's really how it all intersects. Um, I guess to to simplify it, there there's a lot of resources out there about colonialism and the climate crisis and white supremacy and the climate crisis that I really encourage you reading. But those that's just like a 101. Basically. No, definitely. Thank you so much for that. And I guess that leads to a, a follow-up to that question for my last question, is that in that, those things could be kind of heavy um, spiritually and mentally when you understand how evil those things are and what's being done. So uh, self-care is a revolutionary act, as has been said. And how much, how important is mental health? I know you've written about that as well in this process. Well, mental health is very, very important. I wrote several. I wrote several chapters in the book relating to um, not just mental health, but also um, health in, in terms of relationships with other organizers and communication and all of that. Because there's no way that you can be of service to the movement if you can't, if you aren't even functional yourself, if you are um, distraught, if you are sad, if you are, if you just aren't taking care of yourself how can you take care of the world? It's pretty basic. And sometimes I really don't follow my own advice. Like I was recording the audio book for this book and going through a period where I really wasn't taking care of myself. And I was reading the self care chapter, like, Oh my God, Jamie, you need to start following your own advice, girl. Cause you know, we can preach about self care all day, but to be honest, I, I stand by everything I wrote in the book uh, about self-care. I stand by everything I wrote in the book of Youth to Power, but do I always follow my own advice? No, and I think I should because <laughs> I'm learning to more because it's easy to intellectually say we need to take care of ourselves, but then situations will come up and then we will just neglect to, and then we'll have to keep reminding ourselves, remember what you said, remember what's important. This is why you feel so bad. It's because you're not taking care of yourself. And I notice that every time there are feelings um, of animosity towards, you know, whenever I feel kind of resentful of the movement is when I realize that I haven't been taking care of myself because I let it, um, you know, I let myself build to that point where I'm resentful of the thing that is taking so much of my energy because I haven't been replenishing it. And so it's really important that you make sure that you take care of yourself, not just physically, but also mentally in this movement. That's so important, man. Thank you for that. And I guess my last question is really one, and you just kind of, and since you're a creative person and going to be doing these amazing documentaries and films and whatever else you're going to be doing um, uh, in in the not-so-distant future, really kind of builds upon that, that, you know, 30 years from now, Jamie, um, in the year 2050, you will be the ripo age of 48. <laughs> and, uh, and for many of our listeners who are actually now 48 or older, it's sometimes hard for them to understand, wow, that's 2050. Wow, that's what that's going to look like. So I know that working in the climate movement can be exhaustive. So my last question to you is that what are you doing to keep your creativity active and to be hopeful? To keep my creativity active and to be hopeful, I am, I guess, especially right now in quarantine, I'm feeding myself different media and art that makes me happy and makes me inspired. I'm listening to a lot of great music. I'm watching a lot of great shows and movies. And that's not just a matter of escapism. It's just a matter of some shows and movies and, and art and music really has a way of moving you or, or inspiring you and replenishing your soul, I guess. 
Um, and so I've just been doing a lot of that. You know, if I, if I could go outside, I would also, if I could do more, I guess if we weren't in quarantine, I would be doing a lot more, um, things in person to replenish. Um, but right now I'm just consuming a lot of media and music that I find a lot of joy and inspiration. In. And that's really how I've been coping. And that's really how I've been envisioning, um, what I want to create is through consuming other people's art so that I can be inspired to make my own and also be inspired to make the world a better place. Um, I love watching shows with happy endings just to kind of remind me that, you know, sometimes things really do turn out. Okay. Sometimes the good guys really do win in the end. And it doesn't seem like our world works like that, but sometimes you just need a reminder that sometimes it it does work out. And and honestly, but this point with the climate crisis, we don't really have a choice. It has to work out because everything is at stake. So that's really what I do to inspire myself. So Jamie, uh, where can people uh, find you, connect with you, and more importantly, buy the book? Yes. So you can connect with me on social media. I'm just Jamie Margolin on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, It's just my name and you can type it in the search bar and I'll be there and you can send me a message on social media. Uh, Where you can buy Youth to Power, it is out now everywhere and you can go to www.youthtopowerbook.com to order it. You can um, order it in paperback, you can order it as an ebook, or you can order it as an audiobook. And I recorded the audiobook myself. So if you want to listen to me tell you advice into your um, headphones, then uh, you can order the audiobook as well. Um, as well as in your local bookstore, if you just go to your bookstore and you just say, hey, do you, do you carry Youth to Power? Is that here? They'll probably have it. So you can go to your local bookstore as well. The website where everything, where all the information is, is www.youthtopowerbook.com. So you can order it from there. That's it, folks. So go to youthtopowerbook.com and please pick up this book by Jamie. It's fabulous. Jamie, I actually want to end with this. Actually, I know we kind of ended, and I want, but I want to. I want to actually ask you: Did I miss anything that you want to ask me? Um, I guess I want to ask you, like, how how are you doing, and what are you doing right now during these really difficult times? Like, how have you been, and how have you been holding up, and and what are you what are you up to? <laughs> no, I appreciate that. No, I think as you know, I've been fighting for this to to connect the dots within our movement with climate justice and racial justice. And it's hard because I have so many hats of people who have not received justice. And so to continue this trend of seeing Brianna or Ahmad or Rashad or George and on and on and on. And, you know, for me, mentally, sometimes when you see all the hats just in on the shelf, it just kind of takes, takes you sometimes. And then also have hats of pipeline fights, you know, from the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, Keystone Pipeline, Mountain Valley Pipeline, so forth and so on. And so when you see these things and you see how many times we don't win, it can be difficult. But recently, and seeing the victories and seeing the people, um, you know, we've had some wins on the pipeline side. We've had some wins as far as just our movement to divest um, from the police department and invest um, into education and, and mental health. So for me, I'm just excited about that. I'm also excited about you. I mean, I'm excited, to be honest, about a whole new generation. I'm actually super tired of the lot of movements that have been, you know, just calling themselves progressive, but not acting progressive and being in a way in which they're not trying to break down the silos and treat each other as human so we can be, you know, white, black, brown, red, male, female, straight, gay, Theist, atheist, human, right? And our movement doesn't do that. So really, Jamie, you are someone who, and many of us like you, let me be quiet, the whole crew, the whole crew is your alpha, not even everybody else, the whole crew, and everybody in Sunrise and other folks. Um, I'm just inspired by that because I think that there is a want to fight. And I believe in my in the core of my being that organized people beats organized money every single time. And if I just think that if we just have love, I, and I believe in love, I believe that the one thing that will help us to overcome anything will be if we just have a love for one another and we get beyond, you know, superficial and just whatever we feel with the love. And you guys inspire me. I know you guys struggle with that. I know it's back and forth. You're learning, you're growing, all that good stuff, which you, which you should do at 18, 19 or 20 or however old you are. But I can tell you that there is a fundamental thread of love 
And that inspires me. And so when I see all my hats that need to have justice, I know there is a resistance that's out there fighting every single day to get us justice. And that's what keeps me inspired, Jamie. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100%.